It can serve that purpose. It can also advance the kingdom. But sometimes we find our, ourselves in a place where we feel like we need some protection. We need, some, we need the fire of God as a wall of protection around us. Indeed, we can use scripture, use truth of God to be a shield. Now, I thought of Ephesians where we speak the truth in love. There is that working together of love and truth that needs to find its place in our relationships. Recently, I was um, noticing or thinking about how the, how the Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. And then the last ten, ten words given was in the Old Testament was... Um, lest I come and strike the earth with a, a curse. I had to think of that. You know, they went from that time, and I understand it was maybe like 430 years, if you, if you Google that, how much time was between Malachi and the, and the New Testament, the coming of Jesus, was approximately 430 years. They lived in that, uh, kind of with that threat hanging over your head, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And then to compare that with the last words of the New Testament, the last ten words of the New Testament, it says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. What a contrast. What a hope we have in the grace of God, his presence being with us all. It's made possible because we have... Uh, Emmanuel, God with us. And the grace of, of God comes with that presence. And I was looking further at some of the thoughts in Revelation toward the end. It, it speaks there in, in chapter 21. Different facets of, of things that pertain to life. It talks about the book of life. And within a couple other verses, it talks about the water of life and the tree of life. And so I thought maybe to, to look at this a little closer, are there other things about life or, or areas that pertain to the same thought in Scripture? And so I, uh, with, with some help of some Bible study tools, I began to look up and make a list of the things that pertain to life. In Revelation, there is the crown of life, the spirit of life. And, and I followed this through, backwards through the scripture from that point. In 1 John, it talks about the word of life, the grace of life, the promise of life, the savior of life, Romans speak of the newness of life, the justification of life. Acts talks about the manner of life, the prince of life. The Gospel of John speaks of the light of life, the bread of life, the resurrection of life. And then you come to the Old Testament, and I'll just read a list of, of things that, uh, along that line. It speaks of the covenant of life, the statutes of life, the, the way of life, the well of life, and the wellspring of life in Proverbs. 
the reproof of life, the fountain of life, the path of life, the issues of life, the time of life, the bundle of life, and the breath of life. A lot of things pertaining to life. The, the word of God is about life. It speaks of, of the other side. It speaks of death, but it is promoting life. And I think most of us are in favor of, of life as well. That, that one reference to the bundle of life, most of you probably do not know where that comes in. Um, and so I, I might just make reference to that in, I think it's uh, in Samuel, in the book of 1 Samuel, where there was a woman named Abigail that said she was a woman of understanding. She heard that David was coming to mete out a, a recompense be, because of the way her husband had treated David, Nabal. And um, she made preparation to meet David and to, and to alleviate that situation. It said she was a man of understanding. Her husband was not. And in um, 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 29, it says, Yet a man has risen to pursue thee. She spoke these words to David, and to seek thy soul, but the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God. And the souls of thine enemies, them shall he sling out as out of the middle of a sling. And so she, she in a sense there, she brought blessing. By her words, she, she stilled the enemy and the avenger in that situation, perhaps preserving her own life by speaking blessing, and it was almost a prophetic word to David. And I look at that, and I think this is kind of a side note, but I wonder if, if Abigail, and she later became David's wife. Nabal suffered loss, death, and later on that chapter, Abigail became David's wife, and I'm sure it all stems back to her being a, a woman of understanding. But I thought, you know, she may could be a shadow, a type of the bride of Christ. Because if you remember, David already had a wife, Michael. Well, it turned out that Michael was given to another a man by, by Saul. Saul seems like maybe a type of the kingdom of darkness and David the kingdom of righteousness. Whereas the church was grafted in, maybe unexpectedly, in God's program. Originally, Michael could um, then been a reflection of, of Israel. Notably, Michael again became David's wife too. And so, where that, you know, what the message and all that, if there's an uh, illustration in that for us today, I don't know. But I, I would make note that. In 2 Samuel, chapter 3, it says, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. So you have this two polarizing forces. I think Saul could reflect the kingdom of darkness. But it says, David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul 
waxed weaker and weaker. I had to think of that in relationship to the church of Jesus Christ. Our call to advance and to, to be shining, a, a shining light, it describes in Proverbs, it shines more and more into the perfect day. Why is God waiting? Why is God, uh, one, one of the reasons we, we say that it's not that God is slack concerning his promises, he is waiting for, by, by his mercy, that none should perish. And I take it that perhaps that's a message to us that, that more are being saved. There's more that are coming into the kingdom. In the, in the sense that the church is growing greater, like David's kingdom even in the midst of darkness, and so on. But I guess the, the question comes to us is that, is our soul bound in the bundle of life with God, which is, if, if you read that in other translations, it brings out the idea of, of the treasure, the treasure store of God's, his treasure pouch, what, the thing he keeps close to himself. Psalms 119 says, The entrance of thy word giveth light, it giveth understanding unto the simple. And, and so that understanding and that light from God, it promotes life, it brings life, it preserves us from death. The title of the message this morning is The Logos and the Rhema. How many have heard those terms used concerning the Greek, uh, the Greek definitions of the Word of God. It pertains to the Word of God. And it caught my attention to some degree. Uh, I don't feel like I'm studied up on it quite as much as I should be to, to share it this morning, but it was on my heart. And I know that there's some, some um, this, this topic has been discussed where some say there's, there's uh, a significance to this difference. Others would say there is not a whole lot of significance. But as I think of the, um, maybe going into Greek culture a little bit and how it pertains to how we got our Bible and how that the Bible was written, you know, why was the Bible written in Greek? Have you ever thought of that? The New Testament, I should say. There were other languages. Um, Jesus, it was believed that Jesus spoke Aramaic. You had the Jews that spoke Hebrew there in Jerusalem, by and large. And then there was, there was the, the Latin that the, uh, I think the Romans and the, and the Gentiles that were in that setting spoke some Latin. There was also, um, there was also then the Greek. Now the reason the people spoke Greek is because of the, uh, as I would understand it, Alexander the Great had a campaign. He campaigned and, and conquered the known world at that time. And as a result, that the, the Grecian language became kind of like a universal language that was um, part of that culture. You say in some ways it became the main language. 
Now, why do I bring that up? Well, in, in, in the Bible, it says that the Greeks seek after wisdom. The Greeks seek after wisdom. And that may not be all bad. You, if you think about that, they, they, were, uh, they pursued philosophy. They pursued the, the meaning behind life. Think of the, uh, some of the, the Greek philosophers. You have Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Uh, you could say some, some refer to these men as geniuses. They, they thought through things. They, they tried to process what reality was and, and how to advance in the areas of, of arts, religion, and logic. They just they thought of how to, how to think, how to process. Whereas some people, I guess, just floated along and whatever was happened to be. But it was Plato, I understand, that came up with the word logos. And he said, logos, this word logos, is when there is a concept or an idea that has been formed in your mind. But then the question became, how do you take this idea? What is the key to getting the thing out of your mind and to make it work? And as I would understand, they, they formed a school. To, um, they opened up a school that dealt with nothing but how do you make logos work? How do you make the ideas that are in your mind, the thoughts and the, the content, the knowledge, how do you bring it out into reality? And so, you know, that school became another school that, that was centered around another word, rhema, which was the outworking of logos. To take a logos thought, and I think in the Greek, the, the pronunciation, if, if you're really a Greek scholar, I understand the word is logos, it's, it's kind of a silent G, but since it's spelled L-O-G-O-S, we just say the G, I don't think any harm is done. But within that, there was, there was some biblical principle and some, some precedents that that what's in our mind needs to be shown, it needs to come out. You know, faith without works is dead. We subscribe to that understanding. There's a need to make a word active that is uh, burning in our heart, connecting to that word and bringing it out into reality, whether it's an idea, an invention. A lot of things can just sit dormant in our mind unless we have the outward expression of it. And so out of that came those two words, logos and rhema. Might take you to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy chapter 13. Verses one through four. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. 
Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God proveth you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Ye shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and ye shall serve him and cleave unto him. Verse 4, it, it brings out two different thoughts that relate to our obedience to God. It says to keep his commandments and to obey his voice. I would like to use that verse as an example, perhaps, of what logos and rhema are. You have keeping the commandments of God, which you could say was at that time was the written word, the law, the things that they were spoken by God, but it was put on paper to be remembered and to, that was the commandment. And then it says to obey his voice. And I would, I would say that, that is like maybe the spirit word that we receive from God that would be more in the category of a rhema. Now, one thing I, I would say about the Greek philosophers, understand Alexander the Great was a student of Aristotle for uh, at least 10 years, nine or 10 years or so. And, and this was the thing that was pushed, how to convert what's in your mind into reality. And as you know, Alexander the Great um, conquered the known world. He, he took that teaching and those principles and it became very um, predominant he took authority therefore that is where we get a lot of the Greek because of that is is why we have the Greek now understand too there are different uh, classifications of the Greek language one is what they call the Koine language it was the general teaching, the common dialect, and then there was the, cl the classical Greek and other forms of that Greek. But the Koine Greek was, was say, you could say more of a general language that the people understood, and that was important because then as the, as the gospel went out and it was taught, you could take that, that, uh, that language and more than likely be able to convert it into the language of the different churches. Someone would be able to do that. But the, but the thing I would like to, to remember about the Greek is that it's, it had an element of precision with, with the language. And I think God maybe uh, sovereignly did that for a purpose. You know, in the Old Testament, the, the word of God was just referred to as scripture. More than likely, it was just the, that one thing, scripture. But in, in, the, um, in the New Testament, we have the, the word for word in the New Testament can be one of two words, and that is logos or rhema. A logos is a thought or a concept or an expression. Rhema is a specific word for a specific season for a specific moment, you could say. You could say that it's, it's the way that the word becomes action, where it turns into more than just a theory. You can think of it as a word that is fitly spoken. See, there's a lot of good things we could say 
that's not the same as being able to say the right thing at the right time. And so Logos appears 331 times in the New Testament. Rhema occurs 73 times. But it's the same word. It doesn't distinguish it, at least in our, in the, at least my Bible doesn't distinguish. It's just word. And so I thought it might be helpful to, to look at that a little bit. Also related to this is the word, the Greek words chronos and kairos. When Jesus said it is not given to you to know the times or the season, times is chronos and the seasons are kairos. These, these words I understand are linked to the words logos and rhema. Um, Kronos, that, that has that root word chronological. You think of, of something that is in chronological order, it is, is linked to the word logos. But kairos is then associated with the word rhema in that there is some timeliness about what it is, a season. There's a particular part of life, perhaps, that it refers to where we have a word in season. We have a word that fits the occasion the opportune time. And so, when God ministers, when God's word ministers to you, say throughout the year, just day by day, today, tomorrow, and the next day, it is called your daily bread. It is the, the logos of life. It, is, it sustains us in that way. But, you know, Jesus said to pray to give us this day our daily bread. He wasn't talking just about, I don't think about food. Because he said man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And, and that, that word, word in that verse is rhema. It means in season. It's not logos. So how do you get a rhema word? A rhema word is what you could say comes out of the mouth of God. It is something that, that is spoken or by his spirit. You know, because while the, the, the Bible would give us a lot of instruction about how to, how to live our lives, lifestyles, and, and you know, maybe even specific things. It, it does not tell you, you know, who to marry. It doesn't tell you how old to be when you get married. It doesn't tell you where to live or what your occupation should be. But we still need to hear from God, do we not? And I think a rhema word would refer to a word that he gives us in our spirit. A certain confidence that we have, you know, where you know that you know about what to do. You have an assurance, even though maybe, maybe you can't have some scientific proof, but, but there's an understanding and assurance you have concerning um, within your own self, 
regardless of what other people are saying. And, and we need a certain amount of confidence in that, you know, even though the, the world and our friends and, and maybe even those in our brotherhood forsake us. What are we going to stand on? Do we have a, a self-assurance of, of where we are? And I would perhaps liken it to, to knowing um, in the sense that a singer knows that he's on key. He knows that he's on tune. Now some people, you talk to them, you try to coach them with their, their music or their singing and they might not have the ability to really know if they're on key or not. And sometimes I wonder about myself. But there's a sense in which I know when I'm on key, okay? There's a confidence there. Even though I don't have a meter or a scientific way to prove it. And so I, I think to navigate what I would call navigate the Word of God, the Rhema Word of God, it involves some basic steps, I believe, scripturally. I believe it means going into prayer. It means drawing upon what we know from the Bible, the knowledge we have, the storehouse of knowledge we have. Of the Bible is good. It helps, it helps us when we, we need to have specifics. And then, of course, having an ear to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. And this, this can happen, I would say, can happen during prayer. In our prayers, while we're speaking to God, we think we're telling God things, keep, keep the ear open to hear what God is speaking to you while you pray. Maybe that is when he will bring it forth. You know, there's, there's stories of people that, that prayed about a decision or a thing that they needed to, to come to a conclusion about. And their testimony was that when they prayed about it, they just didn't feel right. Well, there's that, that is in order. And, and you know, when I'm praying about something, I may not feel good about it. That may be God's way of, of guiding us and directing us. Think, think of the Holy Spirit guiding you into truth. The truth we need, specific truth for a situation. And they face this in the book of Acts. Acts 15 talks about how it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Now, you know, numerous times in the, in the book of Acts, it, it talks about how it seemed good or, or how a thing pleased the apostles and how they considered a matter and how they determined to do a certain thing. Recently it was, um, there was one of our brothers that was saying how, how the book of Acts chapter 15 is a blueprint. I think that was the words he used. It was a blueprint for um, deciding and helping, helping the church work through things. Um, I would, I, I would say the, the blueprint is not in necessarily duplicating the answers that they were shown at that time for that moment. I think the blueprint of Acts 15 is in the manner in which they, they uh, 
heard the word of God, they sought the word of God, they found it, they pursued it. And out of that came direction from God through the Holy Spirit, through the men of that day. That is a good pattern, but, but I think it may be a mistake to, to say we have to duplicate the thing that God showed them at that time. In other words, they were shown four things, three or four things to, to give direction to the people. It had to do with abstaining meats uh, offered to idols um, from things that were strangled. It had a lot to do with eating, not to eat blood and to abstain from fornication. So those were the four things they came up with. But I don't think it's, it's good doctrine to say, well, the church out of that, the church needs to make just four rules. We, we're allowed to only have four rules or those specific rules themselves. Now, there may well be principles found in, in the conclusions of, of what they came to at that time. But I don't think the wisdom is, is necessarily in duplicating the result of their considerations. Now, why is a rhema word important to us? What is the place of the Holy Spirit or our place in how that happens? And I want to take you to an account in Scripture, Matthew 4, chapter 4. I think that illustrates why this is important. We have the temptation of Jesus. Jesus faced these three temptations. There's probably other things he faced. But I often think, why did Jesus have to face temptation? If for nothing else, I think it was, it was a way to help us. It was a way to teach us how to, how to face temptation and how to do it. And so he fasted for 40 days before this happened. And the tempter came. I had to think of uh, Wednesday night. We were studying uh, uh, about Moses and the question was were there similarities between Moses and Jesus well one was that both of them fasted 40 days so that was one thing that was the same so the tempter came to Jesus he was hungry if thou be the son of God command that these stones be made bread but he answered and said, it is, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil take them up unto a holy city and saith on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, if thou be the son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. You know, I, I, I see what maybe the devil was thinking here. He's, he's smart in some ways. He's like, oh, you're going to play the game of just quoting me scripture. I can do that. I know the word of God. I can, I can quote scripture too. I can play that game. He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all. A very precious scripture. 
And by the way, you know, just because the devil quoted this scripture, let, let's don't let that um, taint our, our, um, our view of, of the value of this verse. Don't let that give you a bad feeling about this verse because it's very true. I believe the angels of God do minister. They do bear us up. There was truth brought out. In a way, you could say truth was being, Scripture was being marshaled against each other in that way, pitted against each other. Angels, hearken unto the voice of the Lord. The voice of God. And they hearken to the word of God, I think it says. I have to think of that. We might think it's just when God speaks to the angels that that's when they respond, which is true. But if they respond to the word of God, they too can respond when we speak the words of God, do you not think, so that the angels could respond to us as we communicate the word of God verbally. And so you have these two scriptures, which, which is the one that pertains. And this may be something we have to, to do in our day to discern what, what part of Scripture is important for the, I would say, kairos moment that we are in. Here, here's one difference, or probably the, the only needful difference between the word that Satan gave and the word that Jesus gave, is that while the devil knew Scripture, and was able to have a knowledge of the word of God. The devil did not have the spirit of God. And the word that Satan expressed. It happened to be the logos. But the word that Jesus shared was the rhema. Because Jesus was filled with the spirit of God. And he had the righteousness of God. He had the favor of God and the presence and the power of God. So do you see why it takes more than just a, a logos? It takes a rhema word for the season that is at hand. To be able to, th this may be partly what goes into rightly dividing the scriptures. Um, Second Peter chapter 1. Might take you there for a, a thought. First, First Peter, I'm sorry, I think it is Second Peter. They're all pretty close together, so next page over, first, Second Peter chapter one, verse 20. I have recently I've heard this verse brought up in, in a couple settings and the manner in which it was given and um, some of the emphasis that came out of this verse <clears throat> I wasn't sure was, was sat well with me. The, the, the thought is this, and I'll, I'll read it, it says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. 
you know, that this verse would mean that we have, as individuals, that our role in understanding or gaining um, personal insight from God's word as an individual is limited because, you know, we cannot privately or personally understand the Bible. Or that we cannot trust or have confidence in, in the Bible on our own or what is being said in our spirit. Because no prophecy is of private interpretation. That is the thought. And, and while I agree that the brotherhood has um, much value and exhortation in bringing edification, exhortation, comfort into our lives through the scripture and our understanding of it, that is not really what this verse is saying. If I'm wrong, I would like to be corrected. It is simply saying how the word came to the, to the prophets. It was not of their private interpretation. It says, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That is how the, the word of God came to the prophet, to the writers at the time it was written. It was not of their private interpretation. It is not saying that we cannot gain some personal insights from, from the study of the word of God. I mean, if that is true, we may, when we leave here, we may as well just leave our Bibles here at church because, you know, we can't understand the Bible unless we're all together. That's, that's not what I see this verse as bringing out. And so... God can certainly, I believe, bring his word in a personal study. It's very important. And as we share that word with our brothers and sisters, it's amazing how many times we'll find that they came to the same thoughts, the same conclusions, and the same foundation that we have attained in our own personal study. So think of a rhema word as a specific word that fits a particular time, a particular moment. The result will often be an action. Yes, we put our faith into, into works. I say often because I believe a, a word from God is, is sim, it, you know, it can be just an answer. It may not require action at that time, but the result of it could be an answer in our spirit. It could be a peace or an understanding that God brings to us where his, his peace begins to rule in our heart and it begins to pass understanding in the midst of things that logically do not make sense. Vine's expository dictionary on the word rhema says a rhema word is not the whole Bible as such, but it is a word quickened to the individual, to the individual from the word. I had to think of Hebrews for the, the word of God is quick and powerful. That means it's energized. It is a living word. It is, it is part of you say an anointing upon our life. It is the key to finding our place in life and our calling and direction. 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And that word, word in that sentence is rhema, the word of God. It takes the spirit to quicken us. And, and maybe that's really what it's all about. It's just the Holy Spirit bringing to light the truth of scripture. Romans 8 says, if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit which dwelleth in you. I used to think that meant the resurrection. But my understanding of that is, is perhaps that he is quickening us now. He, you he hath quickened. It's a, it's a present work that he is doing in our life. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead, I believe, here and now can move on you. It can foster life within you. It can make you alive on the inside. It can quicken your mortal body, I believe, by God's grace. And God will help you because you have now been quickened by the word of God. I think that's why Jesus was so effective. Let me, let me take you to one more passage here. John chapter 3. It notes here a thing about Jesus that I had to bring into consideration as to why he was able to do the things he did. John chapter 3, verse 34. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, talking about Jesus, for God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him. In other words, Jesus had full access to spiritual power from God. And that implies that we have a measure of that. We may walk in varying measures of, of the, the, the spirit of God. And just because we're born of the spirit doesn't mean it stops there. It has to continue. There's a greater fullness of the spirit, I believe, that comes upon the hearts and the souls and even the bodies, our mortal bodies, until we have the new immortal bodies, God is able to bless our spirit, soul, and body until he calls us to another dimension, to the, another life, a greater fullness of life. There was a story I'll close with this story, but in the, um, in the Korean War, I understand there was, after the war, South, South Korea faced a lot of, of uh, orphans because of their parents being killed. So there were relief agencies that were brought in to minister to these children. And they took care of the children, and they found that even though the, the children had ample meals they began to feed them adequately three meals a day at night when they put these children to bed they they discovered that the children were restless and they were anxious and in talking with them they discovered that the children had had a, a great anxiety about whether they would have enough food for the next day i guess they went through a time when when that wasn't happening and so to help help relieve or alleviate that uh, response and that anxiety, one of the orphanages decided to, that each night when the children were put to bed, they would, they would put in their hand 
of each child a, a piece of bread. And the bread was not to eat, they were just to hold it. And they found out that that did answer the, the problem. These children relaxed, they, you know, they had, they had that bread reminding them of their provision for their need. And I had to think of that in relation to God's word, the things of God, the spirit of God. Let's hold them in our hand. We may not be able to, to necessarily partake of it continually, but we hold it in our hand. I had to think too of how the command in the, in the, uh, the gathering of manna, they were only to gather enough for that one day. And I think sometimes the temptation is to go and stockpile. Let's, let's gorge ourselves on, on things that are good. And then later on, we may not have to worry about it and go our way. But I think that the lesson and the teaching is that God, God wants us to have a daily pursuit of his word. He wants us to have the trust that the food will be there the next day. And that it will, it will be fresh. He doesn't want us eating old bread. He may have a fresh word for us each day. His mercies are new any morning. So that's the encouragement I want to leave with you here today. You know, I talked about a river, the river of life proceeding from the throne of God. What a beautiful sight. Can we hold that image in our mind? I'm sure it's a beautiful river that we don't have to worry about the children drowning in the water. It may even benefit them to go in that river and submerge themselves in that water of life. Who knows what God has planned for those that love him. But in light of that, I thought of a song, Brother Dave. Could you lead us? I believe it's um, 449 in the church hymnal. Uh, Fresh from the throne of glory. Shall we sing? Four hundred forty nine. <clears throat> oh, Fred.